You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, it's Sunday morning. The worship service has just begun. We're all gathered here together. We're on our feet. We're singing the first song. When all of a sudden, the back door opens, and in walks a man who, at first, you don't recognize. He makes his way into the room and slowly and deliberately makes his way to the front, all the while looking around, taking it in, all, taking everything in that he's seeing. It, you can see and observe that it's like he's intentionally listening to all that he's hearing, and he's very intent, looking and observing all the people, seeing their raised hands, seeing their bowed heads, hearing their voices, looking them in the eye. Even for a moment, he locks eyes with you. As he continues and makes his way to the front, that first song ends, and as the song ends and he arrives at the front, that's when you realize who it is. It's Jesus. What does he see? What does he hear? What's he looking for in a place like this? As remarkable as it would be for us to see Jesus here today physically, and that would be remarkable. He is here truly, spiritually. And I'm persuaded that what he wants to hear and wants to see, what he's looking for is worship. True Worship, A great calling in the life of every believer and every church is that we're called to be worshipers of God. Now, sometime in the Bible, when you read about worship, it's talking about a life of worship, a life set apart unto God, uh, living the, the worship and the, the life that we live for him. And that's an important emphasis. But oftentimes, and perhaps even more often, we see the emphasis, the call to worship as being not just the life that we live, but also specifically in the praise that we give, in expressing our affections and our love and our adoration and our wonder of God back to him. In fact, here at Hope Niagara, we think that this command is so important that it's one of our pillars, the command to worship God, the call to worship. It's, it's one of our top priorities to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. We call it unashamed adoration. What does that mean? And what does that look like? And why is that a pillar? You can say it's important, but is it really central? Why is it so emphasized? Why are you saying it is incredibly important? Well, I think that it's really important that we get our minds around this today for a couple of reasons. One, sometimes what people call worship isn't really what Jesus is looking for in worship. So we better be clear on exactly what is it, what is it we're, do, we're called to do. But it's also important that we spend time on this topic because as a, a pillar of our church, we believe it's a God-given means by which he'll make us strong and cause us to grow. And so we want to get it right. We want to be on the same page as Jesus 
when it comes to worship. And there's a scripture text that I want to share with you today in which Jesus shows us something of what worship is in God's eyes and what would please him as he looks on our gathering here today. And that text is in John chapter 4. Would you turn there with me in the Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible with you, there's probably one nearby just on the back of the pew in front of you. Just reach out and grab that. It's there for you to use. Or maybe you'll get it on an app on your phone. Either is fine, but I just want you to get John chapter 4 open and in front of you as we continue in our teaching series that we are, called, we are calling Building Up, Standing Strong, The Five Pillars of Hope Niagara. These, are, these pillars are particular practices that we believe by conviction that God wants us to prioritize. Now, last week, we looked at the first pillar that, uh, of ours, and it's unapologetic preaching. We talked about last week proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. Now, today, it's this, the banner over, it, over the message is unashamed adoration, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. It's one of our pillars. It's the second of our five pillars. Now, when you get John chapter 4 open, I mean, it's a great narrative that what we read happening here is intriguing, it's fascinating, <coughs> and for, the peop- the, for a woman involved, what unfolded was very surprising. The scene is this. Jesus has been on a journey, and he's, he's got, made his way into Samaria. And there in Samaria, it's the middle of the day, he's been traveling, he's hungry, he's hot, and he sits down by a well, thirsty. As he's sitting by a well, there's a woman, a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day who comes all by herself out to the well. And to her surprise and utter shock, Jesus did this. You know what he did? He spoke to her. You see, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it was, it was important to understand that Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. There were sharp divisions. In fact, they really hated each other. It was highly unlikely that a Jewish man would ever speak to a Samaritan woman, let alone ask her for something. And that's what he did. He spoke to her and asked her for a drink of water. There he is, thirsty at the well. She comes to draw water out of the well. And as she's doing that, he says, will you give me a drink of water? She voices her surprise in verse 9. If you want to look there, look at verse 9. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she's like totally surprised. Like, why are you you even talking to me? Why are you asking me for this? Well, uh, Jesus, uh, it goes on in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, now the conversation's changing. What's this living water? I think there's a sense here. He's not talking about water in the well anymore. He's talking about some kind of living water. What's he talking about? Well, verse 13, he expands on that. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing at the well water, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Isn't it a curious thing about drinking water that is not long before you need more? Like I just had a drink before I came up here and I'm thirsty already. I need a drink. I'm not going to stop because I want to keep going, but I could, I could use a drink. Thirsty. In fact, I even got a little cup holder here. I'm not taking advantage of next time, Gadget, next time. He's talking about, he reminds us, points out this, this parallel of just as we find our thirst, our physical thirst, only are temporarily quenched, so also our spiritual thirst in this world are never really quenched. 
See, the reality is, is that this world offers all kinds of spiritual thirst quenchers that just don't cut it. Everybody's looking for their thirst for significance to be satisfied. They're, they're, they, they're thirsty for purpose, for belonging, for peace, for justice, for hope, for happiness. Everybody thirsts for these things. And the world has for us temporary thirst quenchers. But it always leaves us thirsty again. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I've got for you a kind of water that will quench your thirst forever to eternal life. Well, that's remarkable. He says in the middle of verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now she says in verse 15, she's very anxious for this, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's, she's tracking, she's trying to track with him, but she's still confused between physical water and what's this water that you're talking about? So then Jesus says this, verse 16, he said to her, he, now he's gonna, what he's going to do here is he's going to show her the kind of thirst he's talking about and just how thirsty she is in her soul. Jesus said to her, go Call your husband and come here. I can just imagine there may have been an awkward moment or maybe she was ready fast on her feet. Notice what she said in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now these two people have never met. You can imagine you're her. Imagine you're her. This is your story. Imagine the look on your face. What are you, what are you thinking? Who is this man? How, do, how does he know all this? It must have been a moment of utter shock on her face. First she was shocked that he spoke to him. Now he is speaking. She's even more shocked. He, she says in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's like, there's, you're just, you, there's something about you. Something stirring in her heart now, and, and, and she, she sees here that there's something you're just not no order. You, you have some kind of God-given. There's some, something going on in your life to do with God. You seem to have wisdom and insight that others don't have. And so what she does here, for us, it seems almost like she's trying to avoid the, uh, the real issues, but actually, I think what she does next is she, seeing that Jesus is some kind of prophet, at least in her eyes, she's like, oh, then I got to take up with you the biggest theological question we wrestle with, you Jews, us uh, uh, Samaritans of the day, and that is, where's the right place to worship? She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is a hot debate between, uh, between uh, Jews and Samaritans. See, the Samaritans, they read part of the Bible, but they rejected most of the Old Testament. They read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And from their study of Scripture, they believed that God wanted them to worship him, to meet with him in the temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews, on the other hand, had the rest of the Old Testament and received the rest of God's revelation to that point. And they believed and they understood that God would want them to, to have the temple and to worship him. The place where they would meet with God in particular, especially, would be in Jerusalem. So here she's got what she perceives as a prophet and she brings to him a hot topic, a relevant theological issue. But Jesus now, and now that she's brought up the issue of worship, he's going, to, he's going to bring the conversation back to her and back to significant things. Notice what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So there's, there's, there's a time coming here very soon where this isn't even going to be an issue anymore. It's going to be obsolete, right? Sort of like a VCR repairman, right? Don't, don't really need them anymore. I'm not fixing the VCR. Or, or a Commodore 64 cabling, right? This don't, don't, it's obsolete. It's, it's, it's in the past. And for young adults, they're like, oh, what? Exactly. It's just obsolete. It's not around anymore. Jesus says there's a time coming when this, this whole conversation is it's going to be a moot point. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know because they rejected much of God's word. We worship Jews. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. God is entrusted to the Jews, his word, and from the Jews will come the Savior. But, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, it's not going to be a matter of where, but who and how. The hour is coming. That's Jesus' shorthand way of referring to his death and resurrection. And when he dies on the cross and is raised up from the grave, he will usher in a new day. God is about to do a new thing. He says, the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. It's almost like, sorry to interrupt again, but it's almost like, it's almost like there's something stirring in her as she's talking to Jesus. She perceives he's a prophet, but the more she listens, there's like there's something stirring in her, and she's wondering, he could be the prophet. Like, he could be, maybe he is the Messiah. No, couldn't be, but maybe he is. She talks like it, and, and so it's almost like she floats this out here to see what he will say. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now notice verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. When it comes to worship, Jesus shows us here some important truths about ourselves, about God, and about himself. He shows us important truths about ourselves, about God, about himself. What does he show us about Ourselves. Well, one thing we see for starters is that he knows all about us. He knows all about us. Before him, before the Lord, we have no secrets at all. I mean, you maybe have secrets from people close to you or people around you, things that they don't know, things they ain't ever going to know if you can help it. But before the Lord Jesus, you got no secrets. He knows everything about you. He knows about all of your successes. He knows about all your failures. He knows about all the things that you're proud of and all the things you're ashamed of. You've you got no secrets before him. He, he, he knows it all. And the implication here when we meet the Samaritan woman is that probably the, the weight in her heart and the, the, the challenge in her life are all the things that maybe she's ashamed of. I mean, and Jesus pointed out that she'd had five husbands. We don't know what happened. Maybe she was widowed five times over. She knew all about heartbreak. 
Or, or maybe it was a rocky relationship and she was cast aside and she knew all about that kind of devastation. We, we, we don't know what happened. I mean, maybe she was a bad player in some of these relationships. We, we don't know, but she's been through some serious heartbreak. She has some experience that tells her that, this, that in this world, finding satisfaction and fulfillment is elusive. But then Jesus pointed out too that, did you notice what he said about her current love life? Did you notice what he said? He said back in verse 17, verse 18, uh, the one you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. So dude living with you, he's just your boyfriend. And so he brings to the point here, the, the fact that she's probably in her life right now, she's, got, she's carrying some shame and regret and some ick that you feel when you're not on the path that God wants you to be. And I say that because the context here that we read, I think, helps to confirm it. Remember we said at the outset that John says early on, if we have more time, we read all the way through, but early on in John 4, he tells us that she came in the middle of the day and all alone. Now, if you know much about the culture, you read that, and you're like, that's weird. That's really weird. Because the women would go, when they went to the well to draw water, would go in groups together. Very rare, very uncommon that a woman would go alone for, for lots of reasons, not the least of which was safety. They're very vulnerable as they moved away from where everybody else was. They go together for safety. Also go together for assistance, to help each other, right? Just to, it's, it's heavy, getting the water out of the well and, and working together. So it was very unusual that any woman would go alone. They would go to the well in groups together to work together. And it's also really weird that she went in the middle of the day. Nobody went to the well in the middle of the day. You'd go early in the morning so you'd have water for the day or at night where it's cooler and you're not having to sweat it out in the hot sun. So you wonder, why did she go to the well in the middle of the day all by herself? Well, then you hear some things that Jesus knows and you think to yourself, you know, maybe she went that time of day because she didn't want to see anybody. Maybe she went that time of day because nobody wanted to be seen with her. And there she is alone. The text doesn't come out and say it, but the implication is that she's got baggage in her life that she would label shame. And yet, what's Jesus doing? He's talking to her. In fact, he's not just talking to her. In a real sense, he's pursuing her with truth and with good news and with himself and the hope that he gives this is something very fascinating that I think we see here that Jesus shows us here about ourselves. And it's this, sinners though we are, God pursues us with grace. He pursues us with his compassion, with his love, with his kindness. The, the, this woman's history, her story, her current circumstances didn't deter Jesus from offering to her the greatest gift of all. And he, he showed her that he knew all about her brokenness and all about her sin, and yet he was still there caring for her and helping her discover that there's hope to be had. There's salvation that he can give. And I want you to hear that too. I think it's so important. The Lord knows everything there is to know about you, and he's after you still. I mean, think about that. Sometimes, sometimes we use people's lack of knowledge about us as a defense mechanism. You know, somebody comes after us, somebody, well, you don't really know me, 
right? And because, you know, you don't, in other words, you don't know really good things about me or how I've had it. If you knew more about me, you'd respect me more, you'd back off more, you'd whatever, right? But so sometimes we use what people don't know about us in our defense. But I think if we're honest, if people knew more things about us, the situation wouldn't get brighter, it would get uglier. Because, I mean, really the reality is, is, oh, there's lots of glowing, wonderful things that maybe I don't know about you or you don't know about me. But my suspicion is, at least I feel this way, on my worst day when people are most critical of me, I can think to myself, they don't know the half of it. The reality is, is that we are fallen sometimes more than we care to recognize. And yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus pursues you still. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, what you've said, you today are not beyond the reach of God's grace. In fact, the very reality that you are sitting here is a testimony to that, that God is after you, that he's pursuing you to do good to you. Some of you got yourselves in the things that it's just so deep and so messy, you can't even look at yourself. You can barely stand yourself. Yet the holy God of the universe, Christ Jesus himself, would not only look at you, but come after you with love. Wonder of wonders, the Lord knows us and yet still pursues us. And you know, you think about that truth, sinners though we are, God pursues us with grace. It really shouldn't be a surprise that probably the most famous worship song in the English language is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's a wretch? Sounds like something you do when you eat bad food or something, right? You're wretch. That's, that's a different kind. A wretch is somebody who's, there's not a lot of virtue in them. In fact, there's a lot of ugly. They're sinners. They're fallen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Hear that line? Am found. Not, I once was lost and came and found you. No, no, we sing, I once was lost, but now am found. You came and found me. You came, to my, you came to the well where I was lingering in my shame. You came, you came to my world, into my space, and found me. You, brought, you came to me with good news. You came to me with good hope. If you are in Christ today, it's because he came and found you. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. I didn't see, but now I do. Well, who did that? Who did that? Did you just sort of all of a sudden get smart and take a course and improve yourself and now you see spiritually? No, no. You were blind and God fixed the eyes of your heart so you can see. See the beauty of him and see the goodness of the good news. And you went one day, you, something happened in you where you saw, if you're in Jesus, you saw Jesus. Not physically, but you saw him for who he is and what he's done for you and your need for him. That is what God does, loved ones. This is what Jesus shows us about ourselves. Sinners though we are, God pursues us with grace. That's what he reveals about ourselves. What does he show us about God? Two things. First, God is personal. Second, God is spirit. He's personal and he's spirit. Did you notice how Jesus repeatedly referred to God? What word did he use? What did he call God? He called him his 
father or the father. Did you notice that? End of verse 21. I also see it in verse 23, but the hour is coming is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father. He's talking about God. Calls him Father. This is Jesus, a very common way that, that Jesus referred to God as his Father. The, the worship the Father in his spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God reveals himself in Scripture to us as Father. This speaks to the fact that he is a personal God. He is person. He has personhood. He's not an abstract force. He's not an impersonal power. He's personal. Now, you should note, the title Father is not a comment on God as having gender in the same way as humans who have physicality. Remember, God is spirit. Rather, the title Father is one that testifies to the fact that he is a personal being with personality. And why he's father and not something else? Because that's how he reveals himself. And so we, so help us God, will refer to God in the way that he teaches us to refer to him. And we won't avert from that. He's our father. The relevance for worship for this is massive. In part, we notice that when we worship, we're worshiping somebody who hears us. He's not, again, he's not some impersonal force out there. He's, he's a person. So when you pray, there's somebody who's hearing. When you sing, there's somebody who's listening. When you give thanks, there's somebody who's receiving. When you're crying out, there's someone who's responding. He's personal. He's not impersonal. He is personal. He is Father. He's also Spirit. Did you notice that Jesus said that, verse 24? Do you see that? God is spirit. And then he goes on to say that because God is spirit, that impacts then how we will worship him. When he says that God is spirit, he's teaching us and showing us that God is not a physical being. He's not limited to a particular place or space. He's real, but not a material being. And what this means for us, implications for worship and for life is that because God is spirit, we cannot perceive him, or, or sorry, we cannot know him, I should say. We cannot know him uh, merely by our own natural senses. We can know about him, but if we're to know him, he must reveal himself to us, which is what he's done, which he's done for many of you. He's revealed himself to you. He's shown himself to you. If you're to know him personally, he must reveal himself to you, that you might believe on him and know him and love him. So what does God show us? What does Jesus show us about God? Well, he's a personal God who is like no other. There's no one like him. God is spirit. There is no one like him. And he's and thinking about who he is, his uniqueness reminds us of his greatness. So he's personal, he's real, and he is worthy. That's what he shows us about God. Now, thirdly, he shows us something about himself. And what does he show us about himself? Well, he shows us that it's in him, in Jesus, that we meet God. Remember, the conversation before this was about place. Well, we worship God in Mount Gerizim, where we believe the temple should be. What's the temple? It's the place where you go to meet with God. You say it's in Jerusalem, in your temple. What's the temple? It's that place where, we, where, where God is, where we go to encounter him and to worship him. But Jesus is saying, what he says here is, he says, there's a time coming and is now here with me when God is doing a new thing. It's not about the place. It's about who. And the place now to meet with God, Jesus says, is in me. 
Notice verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's yearning to know the one who can tell her all about God, tell her what to do about her sinful condition before God. She's looking for the one who will come and shine light into her heart, into her mind, so she can see the truth and walk in it. She longs for the one that she believed would be the way, the truth, and the life. And what does Jesus tell her, verse 26? It's me. I'm here. In fact, the language he uses is even stronger than what I think comes across to us in our English Bibles. Jesus said to her, in my Bible, it says, I who speak to you am he. Now, as I understand it, the statement that Jesus used was even more forceful, and you could say even more theological than what's coming through in the English. Because what he is saying to her is this. He's saying to her, I am. Now, her, even knowing the first five books of the Bible, she's like, I am. Well, there's only one I am. That's how God refers to himself as I am. And to what extent she knew or understood in that moment, she heard something that in just a few seconds is going to make her run back to town and tell everybody she can find, you got to come meet somebody. Jesus says to her, I am not just a prophet from God, but God of very God. God in the flesh. Remember he told his disciples, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God has come to you in a person. And don't miss the significance of worship here. Remember the conversation about temples. Jesus said in a previous conversation, back in John chapter 2, he was teaching some things and they came along and challenged him about it. Said, oh, it gives you the right to talk about these. What gives you the right to say these things? And Jesus hung his credibility, we believe, on his resurrection. But listen to what he said in John 2 and verse 19. He said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they heard that. That was ridiculous. How are you going to just destroy this temple? He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself as the temple. You see, if I would know God, the place to know God and to meet with God is in Christ. And that's what he's showing her. It's in Jesus that we meet God. He is now our place of worship. It's in him. And he is so necessary. Only he can save us. And Peter tells us only he can bring us to God. And this is hugely important for us to understand as Christians. It's, it's, a, it's a majorly important distinguishing mark from other religions because we would say if you are going to know God really, truly, if you're going to have salvation, then you must have Christ. You must have. You don't have Jesus, you do not know God. And that's what he's showing her here. What does he show us about himself? It's in him that we meet God. So he showed us some truth about ourselves. Namely, that though we're sinners... Though we're sinners, God pursues us with his grace. He's shown us something about God, that God is personal and that God is spirit. So we know him really, but he's great and set apart from all other things. And he is the one who reveals himself to us. And how does he reveal himself to us? In the person of Jesus Christ. Now, right about now, you might be feeling like the toddler 
whose parents' approach to teaching them how to swim is to pick them up off the pool deck and throw them in, and they'll figure it out. Maybe you're feeling that. That also is not a very good way to teach your children how to swim. I'm just going to say that publicly from the front, not judging whatever you did or didn't do. But you might be feeling like, you better send me back some water wings here, Ross, because you've had a lot to say. It's deep, it's heavy, and I feel like I'm going under. You might sort of feel like, I was thinking about this, that... um, a week ago, I had a bit of gravel delivered to the house, and this dump truck backs in, you know, beep, 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 and the box lifts up, and as it lifts, out pours all this gravel all over the drive, right in a nice, great, big pile that I can use my wheelbarrow for, and it's a good workout, you know, to, to work at that. You might be feeling that, like I'm just sort of backing up the truck this morning, all the stuff about ourselves, about God, about Christ, and just sort of dump it on you, and just like, okay, okay, it feels like lots of it's good, but I'm starting to run out of air and getting very hungry looking for lunch. I totally hear you. What I want to do here in just in the next few minutes is to try to, to take some of these things that we've, just, we've seen here the Lord is showing us and pull it together really simply into two things. I want to take the remaining time that I have to let's just get it on the table clearly. What are we talking about worship? And then, why is it a pillar? In light of what we're seeing here, why is it a pillar in our church? So what do we talk about when we talk about worship? Well, put a, 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 a um, sorry, put it on the screen for you here. And uh, what is what do we mean by worship? We put that definition up there. First definition. There we go. Worship is expressing something of what we feel about God in light of what we see in God, like see with the eyes of our heart, flowing from a heart that treasures Him with affections that are stirred by truth. It's like, okay, that's, that's a real mouthful. Well, notice again what we're saying here. We're saying it's expressing something that we feel. So there's heart involved. It's not just detached. It's not just merely physical. I don't just show up at the temple and say some things and do some things and say I've worshipped. No, no, it comes from the heart. And the fact that it comes from the heart is there's different expressions of it. Sometimes it's prayers. Sometimes it's songs. Sometimes it's preaching. Sometimes it's words of exhortation and thanksgiving. Worship is is something we feel about God in light of what we see in God. So it's not just a feeling. It's something we feel because we've seen something. God has shown us something about himself, the greatness of his grace, the awesomeness of his power, the the immensity of his wisdom, the the, the surety of his promises, his faithfulness, something we've seen about God, and, and it wells up in us a sense of awe, wonder, gratitude, love, and we express it in worship. So it's expressing something, what we feel about God, in light of what we see in God, flowing from a heart that treasures him with affections that are stirred by truth, not just by emotion. We can get all worked up here this morning by different sounds and waves, and we get smoke machines and lasers and lights and stuff like that, and maybe we can hand out some treats on the way in and, and just get yeah, a real good feeling in here. But the reality is, when worship is real, it's stirred up by truth, truth. So you'll see here, we're going somewhere. I'm going to, somebody a little smarter than me here, can we put it Sanders? Yeah, J. Oswald Sanders. This is pretty good. I saw this this week. Worship is the loving ascription of praise to God for what he is, both in himself and in his ways. So who he is and the works that he does. It is the bowing of the innermost spirit. See what Sanders is reminding us here? It's in your heart. It's the bowing of the innermost spirit in deep humility and reverence. Before him. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about worship. Now, why is worship a pillar 
at Hope Niagara, four reasons. Number one, it's what God wants. It's what he wants. Did you notice that Jesus said that pretty clearly in verse 23? The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He wants it. And I should say here that really, for if, if, you, if you know and love God, then you would agree with me. We don't need any other reasons. There are more reasons, but if God wants it, then that's good for us. Okay, that's wants it, then we do it because he's God. He wants it. So it's a priority. He's looking for it. It's a pillar. It's like, you know, the game Family Feud, you know, Steve Harvey, right? You know, the survey thing. And, and so, so here's, here we go. We got the top. Here's the survey question. Top five answers on the board. Name something that God wants. <laughs> Worship. Survey says, ding, number one. That's what he wants. It's also what he deserves. Like, he, he deserves it. I mean, you and I, we can want a lot of things, but that doesn't mean we deserve it. God deserves it. Remember what Jesus said about God, God is spirit. It reminds me of the uniqueness of God and therefore the greatness of God who created all things, rules over all things, is good, is holy, is God. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God. Sorry, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You are worthy, O God. And also, too, we were remember just a few minutes ago, we were, we were reflecting on our own condition and the fact that sinners though we are, God pursues us. He's worthy of our praise and affection, even just, just in how he's treated us, let alone all that he is in his perfections. So why is worship a pillar? It's, it's what God wants. It's what he deserves. Third, it's what we're created for. It's to worship God. Our highest calling, our greatest purpose is to know God and enjoy him forever. In other words, to worship him. Isaiah 43, verse 6 and 7 is a prophetic call to all of God's people. The Lord says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why did God create you? Why did he make you? He made you for his glory, to be a worshiper of him. That's why he made us. That's also why we work for him, why we serve him. Jesus said, Matthew 5 and 16, he said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we, we serve the Lord, we work for him to bring him glory. It's why he made us, it's why we work for him. It's also, it's our first prayer. Remember when Jesus was teaching on prayer and he gave that, that marvelous uh, example prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9, it begins this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now that is not an ascription of praise, that is a prayer request that God's name would be hallowed. 
It's in the hearts of his people to see him glorified because he made us for it, we work for it, and we pray for it that God would be worshipped and loved. That's, that's why it's a, it's a pillar. It's, it's, what God, it's what God wants. It's what he deserves. It's why we're created. Fourthly, it's what we delight to do. I mean, there may be some that you hear this about, about God desiring worship, and there may have been, even for a moment, a thought that just came in your mind, and you don't really know what to do with it, and it was something like this. Isn't that, like, wrong? Like, isn't it, like, a little, like, I don't know, egotistical to want worship? Well, I would say, if it was you or me, yeah, it would be totally egotistical, and very ugly, because we don't deserve worship. But God does. He's worthy of it. And for his people, the testimony of his people, even his people here, is that to worship him is not a drudging duty, but it's a delight. Because part, a major part of what we're doing when we're worshiping God is we are enjoying him. And we're expressing our gladness in our worship. I think that that's some of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about worshiping God in spirit. He says, again, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worshiping God in spirit means that our worship is from the heart. Yes, there's physicality involved, singing, perhaps raised hands, words, praying, bowing, kneeling at times. Yes, there's physicality, but that's not what it consists of. It comes out of a heart that's a flame for him. It's not out of a sense of duty like we have to, but a desire in our hearts because we enjoy to. It's C.S. Lewis who famously noted that we, we praise the things in life that we enjoy. Like, you, you know, you're watching the hockey highlights, you're watching a game, and you see a great move or a great save. Like, oh, look at that, that was an amazing save. And it isn't but a second or two where you turn to somebody nearby you or you're texting your friend, did you just see that play? Wasn't that amazing? So we, we praise the things that we enjoy, and then it's just like the joy isn't complete until we invite others to join in too. You, you do it too. Just for example, Friday night, uh, I had some wings, some tasty wings. They were garlic parm wings. Oh, I mean, two of God's greatest creations on a chicken wing. Garlic and Parmesan cheese. I mean, like, I, I have to talk about this. It was, it was delicious. If you like wings, you haven't had wings. You haven't had garlic palm, parm wings. I'm just telling you. You and I, the reality is, Lewis says this. We delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses the enjoyment, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Something great happens that you see, you perceive it like, oh, isn't that wonderful? You delight to praise because you found it beautiful, intriguing, fascinating. Oh, isn't that breathtaking? Wasn't that an amazing play? Isn't this an amazing song? But you also, at the same time as you praise, you can't help but invite others. You're going to love this movie. You ain't met anybody until you met Jesus. You gotta know him. You can't enjoy something, you can't love something without feeling or wanting to say something about it. And then to tell others about it too. That's what the woman did. Just look one more time at the text. 
But this time down at verse 28. So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see the man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's a picture of worship. Worship often leads to evangelism because we can't help but praise that which we enjoy. And it's not long before we find ourselves inviting others to join us in the enjoyment. And that's why we worship. Because we want to. In spirit, there's a desire. But also in truth. Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worshiping God in truth means that our worship is in response to truth. The truth about God, the truth that's revealed in Christ and his word, the truth of his glory, of his salvation, of his faithfulness, it's truth. Listen, God is not honored by flattering words that don't accord with reality. Think of it this way. Suppose in a real romantic, mushy moment, I'm just sort of just welling up with affections for my wife and her beauty, and I do think she's beautiful. And we're sitting together, maybe across the table. There's a little candle in front of us and some, maybe some garlic parm chicken wings on the table. <laughs> and looking over at her, and I'm like, honey, I just, every time I look at you, I just, my heart melts within me when I see just your beauty. I mean, I look into your big, beautiful blue eyes. I look at your long, flowing red hair. I just... Just thank God that he gave someone like you to me. Now, if you know my wife, at this point in time, she would probably be reaching for a sharp instrument and moving toward me. Because she has brown eyes, not blue eyes. And she's got brown hair, not red hair. No matter how flattering or nice sounding it is, if it ain't true, she's not blessed. And neither is God. We worship in truth. It's the truth that stirs us about God. And he is honored when we reflect back to him things that are true. That's why it's so important that we're in the word. And why we're engaged, why we're we're listening in the preaching and, and growing in our knowledge of God. Because as we do that, that will fuel the fire of our worship. And our worship will be in spirit and truth. It will be honoring to him. And you know what else? This is just for free. You know what else? There's great power in worship. Do you know that? Great power in your life for worship. There's, I can't think of a better antidote to, uh, a better, um, antidote to worry than worship. There's, there's, there's like no greater tool in your, in your tool belt, your spiritual tool belt than worshiping God in the face of worry. Why? Because you get your, your mind and your heart on him and his greatness and his power and his goodness. And you, you are, you're honoring him and worshiping him and your worry begins to melt. Doesn't mean it goes away. Doesn't mean you're like totally victory, never worry again. But it does mean that you're fighting the battle on your knees and worship before God because you're like, you are sufficient for these things. Or how about fear? You got fear in your life. Can't think of a better answer to fear than worship. When you get before this great and awesome God who is over all things, who is sovereign over everything, and you worship him and delight in him, it does something to your fears. It it weakens them. Or even sin and, and lust. It's very hard to go from worship to pornography. 
You want to get, get, uh, get a, an upper hand in your fight against sin, against lust, against sexual temptation? Get into worship. Get your heart and your mind filled with the truth of God and who he is and pray that the Spirit would stir up fresh affections and tear off the calluses on your heart and to give you love in him. And as you worship him and focus on him, it's very hard. The, the appetites of the flesh and the world are just less appealing when you're feasting on the buffet of God. There's power in worship for your life. And that, loved ones, is why it's a pillar. It's what he wants. It's what he deserves. It's what we're created for. It's what we delight to do.